Dear church family, the day that Jesus was betrayed to be ultimately crucified, he said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit is come, he will reprove the world, not just little tiny Israel, the world of sin of righteousness, and of judgment. And that began to happen in its fullness on the day of Pentecost, when what we read occurred. The Holy Spirit was poured out in abundant measure in the church, and it spread throughout the world. These prophetic words of Jesus have often been debated. Exactly what is Pentecost? And can it be exaggerated? Can it happen again? Or do we minimize it? What's the right balance of understanding Pentecost and understanding the, roles, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church? Was the Spirit not in the church before Pentecost? Lots of confusion here. But one thing is sure. One thing is sure. We are prone not to realize the magnitude of what happened on Pentecost just like we saw with Christ's resurrection some weeks ago. It's so hard for us 2,000 years later to, to put ourselves back into that world where the gospel was confined just to a little pinprick on the globe for the most part. And now to think of the gospel of the resurrected Lord of glory, the living Savior who's risen indeed through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, convicting thousands, 3,000 here, then 2,000 more, and then thousands more, and by, by Acts 8, 20,000 believers, which is a huge number given the population of the world at that time. This is something amazing. You heard it from Acts 2. How many times the word amazing is realized and used? So what I want to do in this sermon this morning is look at verses 33 and 41, but also speak in a more generic way to you about the age of the Spirit in revival through the lens of Acts 2, through the lens of Acts 2. And I'm praying that this sermon will move in you and me the earnest cry, Lord, send revival again. So the age of the Spirit and revival, we want to look at that in three thoughts. First, the Spirit's work in prior ages. Second, His work in the present age. And third, His work in and through revival. Verse 33 Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, 
which ye now see and hear. In verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. A superficial reading of the New Testament has led some people to conclude that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world and in the church is pretty much something altogether new. The same mistake is often made regarding what Christ calls the new covenant in my blood. People often separate then the new covenant entirely from the old. And you see, it's very easy to separate the New Testament from the Old Testament and conclude that some great gulf exists between the two. And then these people often speak of Pentecost as the birthday of the church, as if the Old Testament had no living, vital church, or as if the Old Covenant and the New, the Old Testament and the New, have nothing to do with each other. Hence my first point this morning. I want to show you that the Spirit is active, actually quite active, in the Old Testament as well, in four ways. First of all, in providing creative life creative life. The Spirit's work goes back to the very first chapter of the Bible, the second verse of the first chapter of the Bible. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The word moved upon there actually can be translated hovered. He hovered upon the face of the waters, like a, like a bird hovering over its nest. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 11, uses that very same verb when it speaks of an eagle just kind of fluttering, hovering over its young, tending to their every need. So the Spirit of God was involved in the original creation of this world, hovering over it, bringing order out of chaos as the Lord and giver of life. Fully present, active at the beginning to enact those astonishing results that are compelled by the various creative acts of God, or we call them fiats of God, where God speaks, and it is, by the Spirit. Psalm 104 says this, Thou sendest forth thy Spirit, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. So the Spirit filled the earth, filled the seas, filled the dry land with all kinds of living things. The whole triune God is involved in creation. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so we read that the Spirit is the breath of life. In fact, the very word Spirit means to to breathe, uh, uh, the breath of life, the breath of God that proceeds from the Father and the Son. And when breathed, when we were breathed into in our creation as mankind, 
into the nostrils of the divinely sculpted but lifeless form of man. It was the Spirit who transformed us as a creature of dust and earth into a living human being. Job puts it this way in chapter 33. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. So as you sit here this morning, you owe your very life to the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you, you wouldn't live. Without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't take another breath. So we're created beings, and we don't have life in ourselves. We can't beget ourselves. We can't generate ourselves. We can't sustain ourselves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament doesn't only reveal Himself in creative life, but also in what we might call common grace life or the gifts of life. David, for example, says that wherever there is life, there is the Holy Spirit at work. He says in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? See, the spirit is not just an it. He's, he's not just a power. He's a personal being, and as a personal being, he possesses the very intelligence and wisdom of God, and he communicates that intelligence and wisdom, at least to some degree, to the crown of God's creation, which is man. And so, we, even natural man, even unconverted man, still receive some outward benefits and blessings and common graces from God, from the gifts of life that God gives to us by His Spirit. So, the gift you have to do your job as a, as a mom, or as an office worker, or in the computer business, or as a businessman, or as a teacher, as a doctor, whatever job you have, or you as young people, the, the, that you have the mind to do your studies. This, this is all the common grace gifts of life that the Spirit gives. The Old Testament speaks of that as uh, giving gifts to to workers like Bezalel, who had knowledge and wisdom to do all manner of workmanship by the Spirit, the Bible says. And the gifts, the skills that were imparted of leadership to Joseph, Pharaoh recognized that they were given by the Spirit. And to Daniel, the kings of Babylon even recognized it. And the Holy Spirit also, we're told in 1 Samuel 16, provided some of the early kings of Israel with special capabilities. And he speaks directly to the prophets, Ezekiel 2. And he inspires the scriptures through the outbreathing and spirit-bearing influence. All these things are gifts of God the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit's light, you see, we would just, human beings that we are, depraved that we are, we would just produce anarchy and self-destruct. And be condemned to outer darkness. The fact that there's order in the world, the fact that there's enough kindness in society in general that we can function, that we can walk the streets without dreadful fear, these are all the gifts of the 
common grace of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, not only has that creative life been there and the common gifts of the Spirit been there throughout the whole Old Testament era, but also what we might call the moral life of society has been given by the Spirit. The Spirit labors in the world as the moral agent of God, striving with man to sustain whatever remains of the light of conscience is in man and to restrain excesses of actions from human depravity and to mitigate the effects of evil that people commit against one another. When people murder each other, it still takes our breath away, doesn't it? But without the Holy Spirit, that would be happening just everywhere all the time. You see, we need to consider how much worse society would be than it is without this moral conscience that the Spirit puts in man and sustains by having our consciences speak. And when the Spirit removes himself from that, it's tragedy. Like God said in Genesis 6, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And God sent the flood and wiped out the world except for one family. So withdrawing, withdrawing of the spirit from a man, from a church, from a nation, from the world is a sign of God's hot displeasure. So the spirit, spirit's work abounds all throughout the Old Testament in this moral kind of way. But fourthly, and most importantly, a way that is sometimes denied in modern scholarship, the Holy Spirit is also active in redemptive life, in the life of salvation of every individual believer. The fruit of the Spirit delineated in, Genesis, in, in Galatians 5, 22-23. That is already present in Old Testament believers, isn't it? And the New Testament vouches for that. It was present in Abraham. It was present in Noah, in Moses, in David. Hebrews 11, in the heroes of faith. The martyrs of God, His servants, the prophets, the believing remnant of the house of Israel. The work of the Spirit in saving them by repentance and faith and in drawing them to believe in the Messiah alone for salvation. That was present in the Old Testament in so many places. David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. So the Spirit in all these ways is the Spirit of life. And He's at work where there's light the Spirit is at work. Wherever the might of human sin and evil is limited by divine providence, the Spirit is striving with men. Wherever there is saving faith, the Spirit is at work. So, if this is true, if the Spirit is the Lord of creative life and common grace life and moral life and redemptive life, how is the present age different. 
what difference does Pentecost really make? Well, that leads me to my second point, the Spirit's work in this present age. The real question here is, (coughs) what is so new about the New Testament? And how are the promises of the old fulfilled in the new? Well, in one sense, of course, we can look at it and say, well, there's really not all that much new in the New Testament because all the principles of the New Testament are are there already in the Old Testament. And the Spirit is doing all this work. But viewed in another light, you see, then we say, everything, everything is different. When Christ entered the world, you see, to be delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The Spirit's presence was pervasive and powerful. The Spirit was with Jesus everywhere in a fullness that is not evident in the Old Testament. Every aspect of His ministry. In the life of Jesus Himself. The Spirit is there. Luke one thirty-five. He's there in His incarnate existence. Mark 1.10, he's there at his baptism. Mark 1.12, he's there as he goes through temptations in the wilderness. Luke 4, he's there during his teaching of the multitudes. Matthew 12, we're told the Spirit is there in his miracles. Luke 10, the Spirit is there in his, emo- his own emotional life. And Romans 8, the Spirit is behind his resurrection from the dead. So immediately in the New Testament era... Beginning with the life of Jesus himself, there is an incredible difference. There is a pervasive, he's, he's, he's filled with the Spirit. He's anointed with the Spirit without measure. And then when he rose from the dead and he pours out his Spirit on Pentecost now, you see, the church, well, the ground moves underfoot, if I may say it that way. As someone said, Pentecost publicly marks the transition from the old to the new covenant. It's the threshold of the last days and inaugurates the new era in which the life of the future invades the present evil age. The New Testament is the fulfillment. It's the end of the ages that is dawning through the gift of the Spirit being poured out in richer abundance than ever before. So what is new in the new covenant ministry of the Spirit is therefore always related to the significance of the actual Pentecost event. This is the dawning of that new age in the church in which the Spirit is more active, far more active, in far more extensive way individually in believers, deeper in individual believers, but also broader throughout the entire world. The Old Testament promises of the great days to come. The Old Testament promises of revival is now being fulfilled. Verse 33, by the right hand of God, exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this 
This Pentecost, this outpouring, this conversion of 3,000 souls under one sermon, which you now see and hear. So, what was a hope expressed in types and shadows in the old is now revealed as a body of substance and a new reality for us to enter into and take hold of by faith in the new. What was so long hidden and unknown and unacknowledged is now revealed and proclaimed to the ends of the earth. He is risen indeed. And He pours out His Spirit and He works in thousands upon thousands of Jews and Gentiles. Yes, millions. What was so long confined to the privilege of a few blessed souls in a small little pinprick of a nation called Israel is now offered to whoever believes on the name of the only begotten Son of God throughout the world. This is a new era, a new character and nature, as well as new in scope and magnitude. Something special is happening. Something amazing is happening in this new age, which is called the age of the Spirit. The Spirit continues to do all that He did in the old age. But now He does it in more profound ways, in a much larger scale, and affects so many more people. The light, the light showers of the pre-Pentecostal Spirit are now transformed into the heavy showers of the post-Pentecostal Spirit bringing about the conversion of millions over the centuries. Satan is now chained as the gospel goes to all the nations. Even though he's raging, even though he's active, he's chained. He can no longer hold back the gospel. We are living in what we call an inaugurated eschatology. That is, we are living in the millennial age now. Since the moment of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out in abundance. And so, having sustained the bodily life of man for so long, the Spirit is now working much more abundantly, inwardly, in human hearts that were dead in trespasses and sins. And He's bombarding on Pentecost. He's bombarding the consciences of men with convicting power. He's crushing their resistance to the gospel. He's putting to flight the lies and the errors of the devil. He's overthrowing the citadels of unbelief. He's providing a pathway for the gospel to do its work. And he himself does the work as the power of God in saving those who believe. And so the amazing verse 41 then they that gladly received his word were baptized in the same day. There were added unto them 3,000 souls. Well, what amazing multitasking the Holy Spirit does in the elect, in uniting them to Christ and working out salvation in them in such rich and full and free abundance. Do you realize, dear child of God, how much you owe to the Holy Spirit? 
Every aspect of your salvation is worked in you and through you by the Holy Spirit. A.W. Pink, and he's not the only one, but A.W. Pink has a, has a book called The Work of the Holy Spirit, and he has chapters on all of these things. Think about this. Spirit regenerates. Spirit quickens. Spirit enlightens. Spirit convicts. Spirit comforts. The Spirit draws. The Spirit works faith. The Spirit unites to Christ. The Spirit indwells. Spirit teaches, Spirit cleanses, Spirit leads, Spirit assures, Spirit witnesses, Spirit seals, Spirit assists, the Spirit intercedes, the Spirit transforms, the Spirit preserves, the Spirit confirms, the Spirit fructifies, the Spirit endows. You owe everything in your salvation to the Holy Spirit, just as you owe everything to Christ, who merited it and gives His Spirit to work it in you. Your religion would be a sham without the Holy Spirit. You'd never be saved without the Holy Spirit. So this is just a wonderful, glorious truth that the Holy Spirit not only ministers to you your every need spiritually, individually, but he also globally extends that and cares for the church all over the world and distributes the gifts of Christ among all the true members of his body, the church. And he furnishes the church with ministers, elders, deacons, as we'll see again next week with installation. He empowers the means of grace. (coughs) He equips the people of God to minister to one another and to the needs of a hurting, broken world in the name of Christ. And he expands his work through missions and through evangelism to the ends of the world. And how exciting it ought to be for every believer in one way or another to be a part of that. To be a part of that. So what's new about the New Testament? Well, nothing in one way, but everything in another way. Because now... Everything of the old is coming to pass in fruition, in fullness, in the new. And what was so small, so hidden in the old, now becomes large and fulfilling in the new. And so the Spirit inspires joy and peace and righteousness and the witness of the love of God in our hearts. And He pours out the things of Jesus, revealing them to us, showing us our need of him, and then taking his person, his names, his offices, his states, his, his comforts, his benefits, and just pouring them into his people. The fullness of Christ, the light of Christ, the power of Christ, the gifts of Christ, the love of Christ, truly the age of Christ and the age of the gospel. And the age of the Spirit, they all belong together. And that age is inseparable from revival. From revival. From the revival, the kind of revival we see in Acts 2. Which raises the question, What exactly does the Spirit do in revival? How is the Spirit's work connected 
to revival. Well, I want to show you that in, in, in six or seven ways from Acts 2 that is typical of all revivals, true revivals that have transpired since Pentecost. But that's our third thought. Let us sing first from Psalter 221. 2.21. So, we can say that the Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost resulted in massive revival, such that 
the age of the Spirit, where the Spirit is poured out, is also the age of revivals. But that raises a couple very important questions, very important for the church today. First of all, what is revival? And secondly, what are the marks of the Spirit at work in revival? Now, as to the first question, Ian Murray has written a a wonderful book. I'd, I'd love to have every church family read it. Revival and revivalism. He's talking about true revival and man-made revivalism. And he walks through church history. It sheds a lot of light also on Acts 2. And Ian Murray points out in that book that there are basically three views among Christians about what revival is. The first view is the view that revival is simply the renewal or the continual revival that the church has experienced ever since Pentecost. That is to say, every year we can look around also in this church and we can say, can't we? Well, there's a few more, a few more, maybe a half a dozen, maybe some years 20, who have been saved. And that's wonderful. And we don't want to minimize, we don't want to minimize God's normal work of saving sinners in the local churches. And some people say, this is the way the church ought to grow all the time. We ought not be looking for extraordinary events of revival, which only occur occasionally and periodically, but actually this is revival, the normal way of God working, building up the church bit by bit, year by year. And in this school of thought, actually people are quite critical of revival. And that also permeated, by the way, Uh, the Dutch Reformed tradition in some ways. Abraham Kuyper was sort of of this opinion uh, in in many ways. Uh, Protestant Reformed churches today, for example, especially in this area, are very critical of what we call revival. And there's, there's a book written by a man named Richard Lovelace, which basically argues this, that Revival is just the ordinary renewal of the church through the work of the Spirit. Now, we agree, of course, we must not minimize the day of small things. And we must not be panting after revival in such a way that if major revival doesn't happen, we just get terribly discouraged. No, no, we are encouraged, we are greatly encouraged with every true conversion. Every true conversion is a miracle of God wrought by a God who delights to do miracles. But that's different than saying, this is revival. The second view is a view that's more Arminian, more centered on man, and 
it makes revival conditional upon obedience. Actually, Ian Murray points out there's, there's, there's two, two groups that could be distinguished here. First are those who believe that revival can just be secured by an intense and prayerful evangelistic effort. If you pray, like Second Chronicles 7.14 says, these people would say, and you repent, revival will automatically come. This is the view of Charles Finney in the 19th century in his Arminian approach that if you do the right things and you have a heart for revival, man can produce revival. One of his followers came to, his followers a hundred years later, came, more than a hundred years later, came to Grand Rapids. I still see the ad in the Grand Rapids press. He was walking with a, su- a suitcase, um, uh, Louis Palau, and he's walking with a suitcase a briefcase, rather, in the ad, and it says beneath it, he brings revival with him in his, suit, in his briefcase. You see, you can't bring revival with you in your briefcase. Revival is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God. So it's not man-produced. Yes, we are to repent. Yes, we are to believe. Yes, we are to pray for revival. But we cannot produce revival. It's not conditioned upon our obedience as if it's something that will automatically happen. And the, and the second school of thought here is represented by Duncan Campbell and Jonathan Goforth, who, who aren't so strongly Arminian but, and, and have many good things about their theology. But they also had this idea that if Christians would only exercise the graces of repentance and submission and consecration, and obedience, revival will always follow. Campbell writes, a full and complete surrender is the place of blessing, but it's also the price of revival. Now listen to me carefully. It's one thing to say that God normally works repentance and prayer and so on before He brings revival. That's true. It's another thing to say that if we repent and we believe and we confess and we surrender, that revival will come in some way because of us doing that. There have been many times. There are, there are people in this congregation right now who are yearning for revival. I hope that I'm one of them, and I hope you are too. And we pray for it every day, and we long for it, and we repent And we believe that God is almighty to do it. But even though we've seen seasons in this church where God is working in a more major way than other seasons, and there's an ebbing and a flowing. I mean, back in the early 90s, for example, in this church, there were many, many people converted. Was it a mini revival? How can you define that? It's it's hard to define. But we're longing, you see. We're longing for... a, a. a full-fledged revival where God works mightily among many, many souls. And though we're encouraged by what we see, revival is not conditioned upon our obedience or on our hunger. Even though God works these things before He produces major revival. I hope you see how I'm threading that needle. Because if you don't do it that way, 
you're going to end up with the result that somehow we are instrumental, we get credit for producing revival. And that's never the case. Never in the Bible. Not in Acts 2 either. It's all about God's sovereign grace. Which leads me to the third view of revival, which is this. Revival is a sovereign outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The sovereign outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this is the old classic view of revival, in the salvation of sinners in substantially greater measures than is normally the case. Working deeper in the soul, conviction of sin, and more profoundly in the soul, freedom in Christ than is normally the case. In other words, authentic revivals are not miraculously different from the regular experience of the church. The difference is in degree, not in kind. In degree, not in kind. In an outpouring of the Spirit, great numbers of people are born again. And they grow in spiritual maturity in greater measure than usual. And usually faster than usual. Spiritual influence is more widespread. Conviction of sin is more deep. Feelings are more intense. The sense of God is more overwhelming. The love for God and the love for the souls of others is stronger than in non-revival times. The Spirit works a heightening and a deepening of normal Christianity in times of revival that gives greater hunger, greater depth, greater life. That is the old classic view. That's called the Acts 2 view of revival. They were waiting on God. Yes, they were praying. But then suddenly the Holy Spirit came and did this mighty Mighty work. Now, what exactly are the marks of the Spirit then in, in, doing, in doing this work? Let me give you six of them. Number one, authentic revival then. I want to nail this down. This is very important. Is always the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Its existence, its depth, its timing, the numbers of revival, are all determined by God. The Lord, it says, verse 47, the Lord added to the church, not Charles Finney, not any man, not any gifted preacher, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So authentic revival can never be planned, never be manufactured by man. Acts 13 says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. It's God's work. A revival is not the result of certain processes in history. It cannot be produced by human zeal or human endeavor. It is rather a rending of the heavens. It is a divine intervention among the affairs of men. Authentic revival is prompted by the same sovereign, mysterious influences of the Holy Spirit that belong to the supernaturalism of the New Testament. No one can convert 3,000 people. No one can convert anyone in one day. It's the work of God. And so in authentic revivals, the vast and sudden spreading of the gospel follows no observable plan or pattern. Sometimes God brings revival in dark times. Sometimes after a period of great prayer when his people are waiting on him. It's unpredictable. 
It's the sovereign work of God. And because so few of us, well, probably none of us, have really lived through a great revival, because the last great revival in America really was 1859. None of us have been around then. We can lose a sense of really what revival is by never having experienced it. I had the privilege of being in uh, Scotland, and you know there was a there was a quite a revival there in the late 1950s. And when I was there, I asked the minister I was staying by. I said, "Do you know of any people of God who are still alive, who were who were in that revival?" Oh, yes, he said. There's some men in the 80s in in my church. And I go, I want to meet them. So we had a gathering on a Saturday night. And two of the men came. One was very talkative. The other hardly said a word. But the man began to tell what happened in revival. And like chills are going up and down my spine. Oh, God, do it again. It was amazing. He said, you could be walking the streets at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. You could hear people singing classic Christian hymns and psalms from home to home. And people were... People were affected everywhere, children, teenagers. The town would shut down even for a few days. People were just so concerned about their soul and finding peace with God. And Then there would be great joy in this house when this teenager found the Lord. And great joy over there. And people would be, the town was abuzz with it. That's revival. Now it doesn't always happen to the same measure, so don't, don't get me wrong. But it was, when I heard it, when I heard what happened, I I realized there's a difference between what we call maybe a a little mini revival or an uptick from genuine outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon many, many souls. Secondly, revival is not always only just a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, it is usually accompanied by a remarkable effusion of prayer stirred up by that same spirit prior to the revival. You see that here in Acts 2, don't you? They're all with one accord in one place, and they're all praying together. They're all praying together. And you see it all throughout the literature of those who live through revivals, statements something like this, A church is not serious about revival, about really longing and praying for revival, until it comes together in earnest prayer. This is God's normal way. That's what happened in the last revival this nation has known. It was actually 1857 when six men met in a restaurant to pray for revival in New York City. And then there was 10, and then there was 20. And then they went to several different restaurants. And then there was three, four hundred men praying in different restaurants all around New York. And then it went up north, all the way up to Maine. And it went down south, all the way down to Philadelphia. And then it spread west, all the way to Chicago. And people were getting saved uh, everywhere. 200,000 people, scholars have estimated, were saved in 1859 in that revival. But it was preceded by an outpouring, a prayer. Not that prayer automatically does it, but the Lord is sovereignly pleased to pour out a spirit of prayer. That's one reason why I have labored and labored and labored 
to say to you so many, many times. We need to fill and overflow this chapel. We need to be crying out to God for revival in our prayer meetings. We need to be earnest in seeking the face of God. Where there is little corporate prayer, there is seldom great revival. It's just the way it is. God delights to hear the cries of his people. God delights to answer those petitions that are signed with more than one signature. Yes, he, you can pray in your homes, and please do. Yes, he delights to answer private prayer. But when his people gather together in corporate prayer, you see it here in Acts 2. You see it throughout church history. It pleases him often to hear those cries and to pour out his Holy Spirit. The third mark is this. Revival usually begins in the church, not out there in the world. It usually begins in the church with a reawakening and enlightening of those who've already been born again. That's what happened here. The disciples, the 120, they were gathered in the room praying They were lively. They they had the promises that the Lord was going to send the Holy Spirit. They're begging those promises. They're full of life. When, When the people of God are full of life, you see, when the people of God are revived and earnestly seeking His face for the conversion of their children and grandchildren and relatives and friends and community and work setting and city and state and nation. God often works. It's remarkable. If you study revivals in church history, I spent the whole summer doing it, and what struck me was in revival after revival after revival, God stirred up passionate desire for His glory and for revival in the hearts of sometimes just two or three ministers, or sometimes in the hearts of some young people who were praying in a barn, and then it spread to their parents. And, and the group of people is not always the same, but God usually begins by reviving a certain amount of people in the church with grave concern for His glory to fill the earth. Now, in one way, of course, it's shameful, it's shameful that we should ever need personal revival. God is so wonderful. Christ is so magnificent. It's it's embarrassing that we need to be revived ourselves, and yet we do. we're, We're prone to backslide. We're prone to settle on our leaves by confessing our sins, by appropriating by faith our riches in Christ, by obeying God's will, by renouncing evil on a daily basis. We could have the highest joy, the deepest peace, the fullest measure of God's power every day in our lives. But we get used to living on a substandard level. And that's our problem. We leave our first love. We 
We grow spiritually cold. We become powerless. We lose sight of what is eternal. We become too enamored with the earthly and the temporal. And God himself must revive us with childlike faith and heartfelt repentance and unswerving obedience and loving service. And this ought to be the normal Christian walk. Oh God, help us. Oh God, help us. Revive thy work in the midst of years, and wrath remember mercy. Mark number four. In authentic revival, remarkable spiritual growth results from the Spirit joining himself to the Word of God and then applying that Word to souls. If we had time... We could study this morning Peter's sermon in more detail. But 12 of the 22 verses, think about this. 12 of the 22 verses, that's 60% of the sermon, is nothing but quotations from the Old Testament. Talk about a lack of separation between old and new. Peter is basically saying all the promises of the Old Testament Right now, when you see this and hear this, they are being fulfilled in your presence. We're not drunken, as you suppose. This is the Holy Spirit fulfilling the promises of God through the Word of God. In revival, the Spirit always bears witness to the Word of God. He brings the Word of God home to the hearts of people with authentic and life-transforming power. And in false revival, in revivalism, in revivalism, all kinds of excesses happen and funny things happen, strange things happen that are not connected to the Word of God. And you see, Satan tries to destroy the authentic work, word-based work of the Spirit by producing artificial marks and experiences in revival, false forms of revivalism that draw away from the Word of God rather than bowing under the Word of God. Peter begins his sermon with the Word. He ends his sermon with the Word. Everything he says is biblical. In true preaching, law and gospel are the substance. The Word of God is the instrument. The Spirit of God is the power. The salvation of God is the result. And the glory of God is the end. True preaching. Long gospel are the substance. The word of God is the instrument. The spirit of God is the power. The salvation of God is the result. The glory of God is the end. Number five. Did you notice when I read this chapter, even the, the, the few verses we read of Peter's sermon, how Christ-centered Peter's preaching is? Revival preaching is always the preaching of the Lord Jesus. In revival preaching, fallow ground must be broken up. The law must be proclaimed. The tragedy of our fall must be exposed. But then the preaching of Christ in all its fullness is presented. Because no other name but Christ has the power to set men free. So Peter's sermon is sprinkled. It's grounded 
Grounded is a better word. It's grounded in the centrality of Jesus Christ. His death, His resurrection, His promises. And finally, sixthly, spirit work revival is honest with the souls of men. For the call to repentance is coupled in revival with the rediscovery of truth. The call to repentance is coupled with the rediscovery of truth. That's what you see here. Peter is bringing beautiful gospel truth. And as he brings that truth, he's calling them to repentance at the same time. And he's aiming for it. He's aiming for their consciences. Twice he tells them, you have crucified the Lord of glory. Metanoia is the Greek word, which, which he's saying, when they ask, what must we do? Verse 37, I think. And then in verse 38, he says, repent. Metanoia. Metanoia is the, is, the, is the one Greek word for repentance. There's more than one Greek word. But it's the one that means a radical change of mind. To unconditionally return to God. To do an about face in the direction of your life. It means to sorrow over sin. To confess it. Forsake it. And cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Repentance, metanoia. It's a divine gift, but it's also a lifelong commitment. And Peter is aiming for that. He's telling them, this is where you've got to come. You've crucified the Lord and Savior. You need to repent. And dear friend, if you're unsaved sitting here this morning, repent. Your life needs to be turned around. You need to find God. Your life is empty without God. You need to repent and believe the gospel alone for salvation. Interestingly, in the New Testament, sometimes it only says repent. Sometimes it only says believe. Sometimes it says repent and believe. 3,000 times in the Bible, it tells you in one way or another, you need to repent and believe. Did you know that? But in the Bible, both are inseparable from each other. You can't repent without truly believing. You can't truly believe without repenting. They're like two sides of one coin. And you see, that is what is personally needed. And the Spirit works that as well. Repent. Peter says. Of course he means also. Believe. That's implied every time the word repent is used. Well, let me close this sermon by just asking ourselves, me too, because we all need this. Right now, the way our spiritual condition is, the way your spiritual condition is in your life, if you're a believer or if you're an unbeliever, are, are you an asset to revival? To revival in your family? To revival in this church? To revival in the state of Michigan? Or are you a hindrance? In the 1859 revival in America, J.W. Alexander from Princeton, godly, godly man, 
spoke on this to his congregation. Are you an asset or are you a hindrance to revival? And what a question that is. Obviously, we're hindrances if we're just satisfied with mere status quo, with mere tradition. We read the Bible every day to our family, a few verses, come to church faithfully, content to believe the truth with our mind, let the world walk by our door, traveling onward to hell without concern to evangelize them. Traditional, conservative, reformed religion. We're a hindrance. We're a hindrance to revival when we fail to intercede for others, for the eternal well-being of those around us. Our prayers, I speak for myself, our prayers can be so tragically self-centered, can't they? We want God to help us today in this and that and the other thing, and, but we have not because we we ask and we receive not because we ask amiss, James says, that we may consume it upon our lusts. We want things to go well in our lives. But when there's revival, when you're an asset to revival, you have a yearning passion for the souls of others, for revival everywhere, everywhere. Also, this church. And we're hindrances to Revival. When we hug our cursed unbelief, hug our doubts and our fears, and don't look to the Lord. How well I remember one of our former members who's now with the Lord sitting on my couch back on Romance Street years ago, weeping his eyes out and saying, Oh, my cursed, cursed, cursed unbelief. It hinders me every step of the way. Oh, may God help us to cry out, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. and Believe that the God of Pentecost can do it again. That the God of the Great Awakening of the 1740s can give a greater awakening than the Great Awakening in America today in the midst of darkness. Dear child of God, be an asset to revival. Cry out to God that he will do it again, that he'll be a God of Pentecost again in a greater measure, that we would see greater days than we've seen heretofore. J.W. Alexander ends his sermon with eight questions. I'll just read them to you. Are you an enemy of revival? Do you rejoice in revival? Are you a subject of revival? Do you pray for revival? Are you helping forward revival? Does your heart care for the fruits of revival? Have you sought to honor God in revival? So I close with this little poem written by one of our uh, forerunners. Come, Spirit, come in mighty power as on the blessed day of old when fell the Pentecostal shower that gathered thousands to the fold. Oh, for a mighty rushing wind to fill this consecrated place that sinners lost might seek and find the gate of hope, the door of grace. Oh, for a power that heals the heart, that takes away the dross of sin, 
that we may, like the world, depart and let the King of glory in. Dear Savior, from thy throne on high, now grant the power for which we call till shouts of rapture fill the sky and thou, O Lord, art all in all. Nothing but the power of the Holy Ghost can sanctify and keep through a Savior's love and light within our souls the flame that burns on the altar of heaven above. Amen. Gracious God, do it again. Send revival. Save the lost. Revive thy people. Fill our hearts with holy concern and passion for thy glory. Holy Spirit of God, pour out thyself upon us. Even today, may we go to our homes. May we go to our bedrooms. May we cry out at our bedsides, on our knees, Lord, revive me. Revive my family. Revive the church. Revive the state. Revive the nation. We live in parallel, perilous times. Oh God, in the midst of darkness, make a great name for thyself. Arise, O oh Lord. And show us thy face once more, and we shall be saved. Come and bless. Rend the heavens and come down, O God. And send thy spirit in great abundance to us. We're unworthy, Lord, but thou art worthy. We want thy glory. We want to see thy face, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, do mighty things. Do mighty things for our children for our teenagers, for GCA, for PRTS, for this church, for our families, for all the means of grace. Bless them to our souls. Spirit of God, arise and work. Is it not time, O Lord, for thee to work? O come and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.